As you might expect in readings appointed for Epiphany, that our readings this morning give us a revelation of God and his mind in these three passages, but they also call us clearly to a decision. And so we have before us this morning revelation and a decision. By the time we get to Deuteronomy 30, the Israelites are perched at the edge of the promised land. They're about to enter. And they are listening to Moses, who's delivering one of his last messages from God. And he's urging them, as you can see in your passage, to choose life and to do this through a commitment to obedience to God, that the way to choose life was this path of obedience. And it struck me this week as I was thinking about these passages that choice, you know, just think of the notion choice, coupled with the notion of obedience, I would think would you know, sound a little clangy in the ears of most North American, even Christians. I mean, after all, isn't obedience constricting? And we don't tend to like anything that feels at all constricting these days. I mean, because anything that feels at all constricting feels like it works against the highest value in our culture, which is my personal freedom or my personal autonomy that allows me then to pursue and hopefully fulfill my desires. So anything that constricts against that doesn't feel much like choice. Like how is obedience the path to choice? Well, let's just think for a moment, what is obedience? And I said when we began that Sabbath in Hebrew isn't a particularly technical term, but this term for obedience, uh, we can pretty easily lose its underlining meaning. Obedience doesn't mean like first and foremost, or only a stop sign, I must stop. The Hebrew idea is way warmer, it's way more relational. It really means to listen, right? Like we sometimes say to kids, now you listen to me, right? So we've sort of taken it and twisted it that way, right? Or to a dog, right? Now you listen to me, Rover, right? Uh, but this was meant to be more of a warm, relational, engaging, now listen to me. You know, the psalmist might put it like, you know, incline your heart to me, it's meant to connect the deepest, most rich things about God with our deepest and richest inner self that then leads to a transformation that then leads to obedience to God, which then leads to the good of others. Now, where might I get that idea? Or where, where might we get that idea biblically? I mean, you'll get this as soon as I say it. We just need to s simply stop and think about this story. I mean, this story that we pick up in Deuteronomy 30 has its origins in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the calling of Abraham. And remember, God says to Abraham, look, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And if anybody comes against you, don't worry, I'll protect you. If anybody rises up against you, don't worry, you'll be fine. I will take care of you. Anybody remember why, what the punchline is? 12, 3. And you will be, anybody remember? a blessing to the whole cosmos. So see, that's the story in which choice and obedience fits. And I just want to say to you, please consider this. Just try this on for size. That choice and obedience had meanings before modern liberation, before the French Revolution. <laughs> there were meanings for choice and obedience and their root is not in a fighting against 
I mean, what we've been dealing like, I mean, this is a bit of an oversimplification, but for the sake of this brief sermon, what we've been working with now for several hundred years is the throwing off of all authority, the throwing off of anything that we would be invited to be obedience to. So monarchy, throw it off. Church, throw it off. Even science, when it doesn't fit our point of view, throw it off. So that now you have lots of sociologists, religion, and other thinkers wondering, where now is authority? So if there is no place anymore of authority to which we might align ourselves, well, then, of course, what's left but human desire? Like, I know what's real in me. I know my thoughts. I know my feelings. I know my longings. I know the way that I appear to be wired. And so then the highest good becomes, then don't put anything in my way. And so then as soon as you use the word obedience, read through that lens of modern and postmodern liberation, it just sort of clangs. But that's not at all the view of the scriptures. The view of the scriptures is if you'll just come into obedience to the notion that I chose you to be my people on the earth and that as you give yourself obediently to that and bring into alignment the broken and fragmented and disrepaired parts of you that keep you from doing that, as you bring that into obedience, that will actually be good for you. And the natural overflow is it'll be good for others. So then, you know, you know this story There are centuries of prophets who then stand in the tradition of Moses trying to help people see the consequences of idolatry. That's the biblical word. For putting first anything other than this story, the biblical word for that is idolatry. And all the prophets say the same thing, that idolatry is deadly. It doesn't lead to life. But that striving to live in relationship with God does yield life. And of course, as this gets more richly talked about in the Old Testament, we come to ideas like covenant. And the notion for Israel was that covenant fidelity is really fidelity to a set of lived practices, an ongoing orientation towards love of God and love of neighbor. And so here Moses is not asking people to simply check off the correct mental or religious box. He's not saying Islam Hinduism, Buddhism, various earthly religions, Christianity, check the right box. Now, the invitation would include such a decision, but that's not what's in his mind. He's not asking them to check a right religious or mental box. Moses is asking them to turn their whole lives to God. This is what you are called to. This is what gives meaning to humanity. And you hear the echoes of it in the garden even, you know, in Genesis 1 and 2 before Genesis 12. Come work with me. Come be my people. Align yourself to this thing which I've called you to. And so when Moses says, see, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction, he's not like a cop saying, see, I sit before you my ticket book or that damn stop sign. It's not that kind of thing. It's can't you see that I set before you my purposes for humanity. And if you want to know what it means to be alive, if you want to know what it means to be a flourishing human being, well, that's only found in this story. And people who try to find it outside of this story, they end up in all sort of what Deuteronomy calls curses. Now, again, that's a clangy word to us. But just think of it as non-human thriving. 
the reduction where, where human beings actually dehumanize themselves and dehumanize others. That would be a more modern way, perhaps, of talking about this Deuteronomic idea of blessings and curses. And so then if we hear Moses in that way, then choosing life means something like starting a spiritual journey and then beginning to live in this messy and difficult but holy relationship with God. I mean, I don't know if that's the way you experience this, but I've been trying to walk with God for 41 years and I still experience it as this journey and discovering things about myself that I didn't know was real or life circumstances present themselves to me that no one could have saw coming and that's a different challenge on what I might have thought was a well-ordered heart. Are you feeling me here? This is a commitment to a, an essentially relational process in which all the malaligned things of our life get sort of swept up into this great momentum of God. And as life goes on, it's challenged, but we continue to give ourselves to it. That's what obedience means. So our psalm this morning picks up the exact same themes of seeing God's communications to us as loving communications and that we're meant to give us blessing. This is why if you look at your text, the psalmist cries out, Psalm 119, Oh Lord, how I love thy law. Now it's just, again, picture yourself. I don't know about you, but every time I see somebody pulled over on the freeway or something with those flashing lights, I'm always just like, what a bummer, right? Just like ruins your whole day, right? Can you imagine a cop walking up to the car and somebody looking out and goes, sir, how I love thy law. Right? And, when, and when your sort of mental, emotional framework about God and law is in that way, you are always going to feel the paranoia you feel. I want you to get this. The paranoia you feel when you see a cop rush up behind you. Right? You immediately think, am I going the speed limit? Did I do anything wrong? Did I stop at that stop sign? Right? When you make God into that, you are not apt to follow him. You're not apt to really love him. You're not apt to see that his precepts are good, right? Just think of Psalm 19, sorry, 119. Psalm 119 is basically, it's the longest chapter in the Bible and essentially just goes on forever and ever and ever talking about the goodness of God's law. Well, it can't mean that. It can't mean that thing we feel or why would a human being have expressed love for it? And expressing a whole tradition in that psalm of love for it. Because when rightly understood, Torah means God's guidance, his counseling, his mentoring, his shaping. Maybe that's the best word. His shaping of a people. That's what Torah was meant to do. But that only works for people who are giving themselves to it. So our psalm this morning just celebrates the sweeping importance of God's instruction in the creation and sustaining and focusing of a people. Well, when we get to our gospel reading, those words that Dennis read to us this morning don't come out of the blue, obviously, right? Now, none of these things of Jesus come out of the blue. And none of these things can actually be well understood or helpfully understood in a decontextualized way. So what's the context here? Well, it's this ongoing story. Jesus is now looking at a group of Jews, the Israelites, the people of God, and he sees that now just in a different way, the plan of God is still being derailed by these ongoing misunderstandings about law. So later, we didn't read it this morning, in Matthew 7, Jesus says to the same group of people, you have a fine way, listen to this, of rejecting the commandment, that's the law, the command of God in favor of your traditions. So now Jesus is just looking at a group of people who give tons of lip service to Torah. 
but are completely butchering its meaning and its intended affect on them and the world. And so with Jesus, as he, you know, sits on the mount where he's given this sermon, these people are standing before him. He sees people, as we read last week, who are called to be light, but they've become a part of the darkness. They're called to be salt, but they're actually spoiling humanity, not preserving it. They've given themselves to power politics and to factional hatred and to militant views of each other. I mean, I've said this to you before, but I just think it's so important you get this, that the Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians and Zealots and the Qumran sect, these people hated each other. And they hated the Samaritans and they hated the Gentiles. It was full of this factional fighting, very intense militaristic views about everything. And Jesus just looks at him and kind of goes, oy vey, you know, like, like you guys are like seriously off track here. And so he, very much like Moses or the psalmist, is trying to teach Israel to move from law, negatively construed, to a new way of covenant faithfulness that was rooted in the heart. He's trying to move them to a new way of being human in the image of God. And so as Jesus stands there as the beginning and the end of this long story, he's trying to bring Israel to its intended conclusion that goes all the way back to Genesis 12. But now he's trying to do it by bringing to them and to us an internal revolution of the heart and mind so that one would repent, that is to rethink all that errant thinking and then place our confidence in what Jesus was teaching. Well, equally true for us as it was for them, that's easier said than done. I want to invite you this morning to stop and think about that. I mean, we all love and cherish Jesus, right? And we would all say his teachings are true. So can we just be honest for a second? Why is it so difficult then to actually take his teachings serious and to try to take them on? Why is it easier said than done? And I want to suggest the reason is because one doesn't just take them on. One has to first abandon prior commitments. Right? If I say to you, here, take this, and your hands are full, you must first unburden your hands. And the way this works mentally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, in the inside of a human being is but I'm committed to the notion that my life works best when I bully people by my anger. It's how I get my way. It's how I supervise my people at work. It's how I keep my children in line. It's how I get my spouse to do what I want him or her to do. You're asking me to give up my fundamental orientation to life, anger? Or I would not know what it would be to be alive except for to my lust. I am my sexuality. And my sexuality gets expressed in lust. And without that, I wouldn't know what it means to be alive. So, okay, sounds pretty good for you to hand me that, but I'm not quite sure I can let go of my previous commitments. They have become my sense of myself. You're asking me to make radical change here. And yeah, that is the whole point. So for instance, when, when you know, Jesus says, you know, you've heard, you know, you know the, you could hear the rhythm in what Dennis read to us this morning. There's this rhythm of, well, you've heard it said, but I say. So, you know, you heard it said that you shouldn't murder, but I say to you, don't be wrongly angry. And so what Jesus is doing is he's trying to get Israel and us to cultivate a heart such that we would get to the place where we would never wish someone dead. 
Now you think, oh, come on, no one would do that. Have you seen headlines in newspapers in the last couple months? Have you seen covers of magazines? I guarantee you there are millions of people who would have been just as happy for Hillary to have been dead or for now Trump to be dead. That, that would be just a perfectly good outcome to them. This is actually a very easy thing to rationalize. I wish my boss were dead. And Jesus is saying, don't pat yourself on the back that you didn't murder somebody today. That was never the point. Become the kind of person who so cherishes the other and so wills their good that you would have this intense selfless desire to help them, to reconcile what's wrong. And you see, this Jesus wants to say to them not only takes precedence over misunderstandings about the law, but you heard the passage this morning, it takes precedence over covenant prescribed worship. If you're leaving an offering on the altar and you realize you have this sort of hatred in your heart towards somebody, leave church. Not because you're excluded there, but like it's so important, go fix it. And this is great hyperbole. We miss it. But Jesus' hearers would have heard the great hyperbole. Like, you want me to walk three days back home? I just walked three days to Jerusalem. You're telling me you want to me to round up my kids and animals and walk three days back home and make something right and then come back. So this is great hyperbole, but it was, Jesus was just meant to say, no, you're missing the whole point here. The point of the commandment was not to commit murder. The point of the commandment was to shape a community that there was so much will to the good of the other that murder would never be an option. Well, I just have the same thing all the way through this. You know, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, don't cultivate lust. Don't indulge it. Don't fantasize about having sex with people. Jesus is simply saying, change your heart so that you don't look for the purpose of lusting. But rather, you would love the object presented to you so much that you would never use them. I had occasion to say to somebody this week, you know, I'm not blind. When a beautiful woman walks across my field of vision, I'm not blind. I'm fully capable of seeing what's in front of me. But that being the case, now you have a fundamental orientation, all of us, male or female. I just happen to be using a male example here. Now the, now the moment's on. And so now we have a choice to make. To look in order to lust, that is to say, to use her for my temporary entertainment, or to see a human being before me whom I exist for her good. And once you make that move, then you can no longer use her. This is what Jesus is getting at. So don't reduce this to law. This was about shaping a people who would be God's people who exist for the good of others. But you can't exist for the good of others if you're full of hatred and lust and if you use oaths to bully others and get your ways. And guys, you throw off your women in divorce just because Moses said you could. But you know darn well you're abandoning these women to a life of slavery. And you're just willy-nilly throwing your women off. But you know that a woman in this culture had no hope but to give herself sexually to others. That was her only hope, to even have water to drink. What do you think the story of the woman of the well is about? To have food, to have shelter. Jesus is saying, can't you see that you're using a, a, a stroke of the law to satisfy your own desires and essentially imprisoning this woman to the most horrendous life possible? And you were called to liberate her. 
You're called to be my people on the earth, liberating her. And for your own whim, you imprison her, socially speaking. This is what Jesus is getting at. He's standing in this long, long, long tradition of saying, see, I put before you life and death, blessings and cursings. And, and it's meant to just say, come into this life for which God created human beings. Come into this life for which God created Israel. So stop bullying each other with oaths. I mean, that's another classic example of oaths were actually meant to be a, a good and proper thing. But what people were doing was using oaths to actually dissemble. Do you know that word? They were using oaths to um, trick people. So they would say, you know, I swear on my mother's grave, right? All the time intending to actually lie. So not use the oath for what it was given for, but to actually use it for its opposite. For me, being an old baseball player, I think of the heartbreak of dozens of baseball players sitting before those congressional committees saying, I swear on my mother's grave, I didn't do performance-enhancing drugs. No, quite to the contrary, you did. Despite all of the things you call upon, right? Well, I love my team so much, or why would I risk my reputation? I didn't do this, right? Or politicians, I did not have sex with that woman. Right? That's, this is what Jesus is getting at. You take something that was meant to be good and you've twisted it into a way of actually harming others and getting your way. And so what Jesus is always calling for is that in love, you know, like just, just think of him. Love God. Love your neighbor. Right? So in love, Jesus is calling people to honor the deep soul need of other humans to have their own mind and their own freedom. And when you use an oath to dissemble, to lie, to fabricate, you have actually deeply harmed other human beings. God made them to have their own mind and to be free in their own thinking. And when you work against that freedom through manipulation or lying or bullying, you're actually being the opposite of what God called you to be on the earth. This is what's happening in that conversation. And so it doesn't really matter what the issue is, anger, lust, divorce, oaths, whatever. It all gets back to the same thing. And for me, as I was meditating on these things this week, it raised the question for me, what do you suppose would be the inner life the habits of mind of a person who wouldn't act those ways, who had love rather than anger, who cared for whatever your thing is so much that you wouldn't lust. You wouldn't casually throw people off of relationships like divorce. You wouldn't use oaths to manipulate others. And the best answer I could come up with was this first saying to myself and now saying to you. I think the key here is that we come to the place where we honor the preciousness of others. Just finding something precious automatically excludes all kinds of stuff. So, finding this precious, having been on my left ring finger for 41 years, I don't have to think about not caring for it. 
finding something precious automatically rules out most human evil. So when you find yourself chafing against law, maybe we just need to go a little deeper and say, am I not finding this person precious? Preciousness that comes from a transformed heart of love naturally takes care of wrong anger and lust and misleading words and casual divorce. This is what Jesus is trying to teach us. And that being in alignment to the law of God expressed by Moses and praised by the psalmist, Jesus wants to say really does lead to blessings both for you and through you to others. Now, having said all that and thinking about myself, you know, standing before you this morning, talking like this, the thought came to me as we come to our quiet time that there's likely people here this morning hurting from choices that they've made that has actually led to suffering and bondage. There are likely people here for whom you've engaged in the kinds of things that Moses and Abraham and the prophets and the law and Jesus have said, you know, this is what happens. And I just want to say to you this morning that thank God, God is not bound by mandatory prison sentences. That if you feel yourself bound this morning, maybe you've even used words like cursed or something like that, synonyms of cursed. In Jesus, you need to know that the choice for life is always open to you. This is not a one-time thing. You say, well, Todd, what should I do? Well, just do the next right thing. Make the next thing precious. See how it goes for you. If you find it hard for you, just begin to wonder why. And wonder along with the Holy Spirit. And wonder along with the scriptures. And wonder along with your community of faith. And just begin to wonder along. Just trying to do the next right thing. And the power, grace of God, that to just say, okay, how do I love God in this situation? How do I love my neighbor in this situation? How do I live a life of blessings for others? And what the long tradition of Judeo-Christian revelation says to us is that if you go down the one path, you will find great blessing. You will be human as God intended. And through you, others will experience the same. So as we have a time of quiet now, perhaps you want to bow your head, close your eyes. And if you've noticed something this morning where you are hurting from choices you've made that you feel like lead you to suffering and bondage, you can let them go this morning. You can place them before God, knowing that in Jesus, you always can have a fresh start, a new chance, a new beginning.